Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. What's going on, everybody? Happy Friday. Welcome back to a brand new episode of your favorite libertarian podcast, this side of the Mason-Dixon line, the Peddling Fiction Podcast. And I, of course, am your host, the purveyor of so-called fiction, Johnny Profita. And it is Friday, but, you know, it just feels like any other goddamn day during this quarantine. <laughs> I mean... Is Friday any different, really, from any other day when you can't leave your house? But um, I guess some of us don't have to work for the next couple of days. So you got that going for you. Not a whole lot to report on my front here, deep behind enemy lines. My neighbors still have not returned to deal with the beeping. So I still got that going for me. And I have not heard back from my um, management company as to whether or not they were even able to get into touch with anybody over there or what the hell's going on. So it's looking more and more likely that I am going to have to break into their place and fucking rip that thing off the wall, whatever is making that noise. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was joking with a buddy of mine. For all I know, it could be their life alert bracelet that's just been beeping for three weeks and there's a rotting corpse over there, but I don't think they're that old. So I, I don't think they um, would have a life alert bracelet, but it has been driving me crazy. The, the thing that's more annoying about the beeping noise is the fact that I don't know what's causing it and I can't figure it out. You know, I tried timing it to see if I could like do a search for something that beeps at the same intervals as this thing beeps and, and figure out what it is that way. But I, I can't get an accurate time. I can't figure out. There's no rhyme or reason to it. And it's not like I know what a smoke detector chirp sounds like. And this is not that. Um, I, I know for anybody, um, anybody listening that used to listen to Love Line with Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew. Uh, I think I probably mentioned my love for this uh, that radio show on this podcast before. But they used to always get these idiots calling up and every once in a while you could hear the smoke detector chirp in the background and it turned into this whole like running joke on the show. Um, so I'm very familiar with the smoke detector chirp and that's not what this is. And I've been racking my brain to try to figure out what it is that's beeping because it can't be that many things. But anyway, um, that's still going on. And I am still, you know, quarantined here. They are, um, I think they're either announcing or they have announced that this is going to extend in Chicago or Illinois until the 30th. So we got we to gotta buckle up for another month of this. That is daunting, to say the least. But, you know, luckily we have all this modern-day technology to keep us occupied. And... I, I have uh, a couple of articles in my stack here today that I wanted to go through. All of them are uh, pretty bad news for the U.S. economy overall and the American people in particular because we're, we're starting to get the first wave of unemployment figures and the first wave of uh, Fed balance sheet expansion and jobs being lost and money being created out of thin air. And this is just the beginning of, of what's going to be an economic disaster. No doubt in my mind about that. So there's going to be a lot of negativity on today's show. But there is, 
you know, I do want to try to look at some of the positive things that can come out of this. And for those of you who may be one of the 10 million people in the last two weeks to file for unemployment or one of the 700,000 people who lost their jobs in the last uh, month or so, you, you do have a tremendous opportunity coming before you because everybody's sitting at home. And even if you still have a job, we're, we're all in our houses right now. Some of you are, are going to be getting a, a $1,200 check from the government. And those of you who have lost your jobs are going to be getting like $1,000 a week or something like that. You know, you're getting the extra 600 plus whatever the benefits normally were. You're getting paid to do nothing. And you've got nothing but time on your hands. So you have a great opportunity to take advantage of that and not just sit on your keister double-fisting bonbons and watching Netflix. As much fun as that is, you have a tremendous opportunity to take that money and invest in yourself and learn a new skill, learn something or create something that can help provide value to society so that you don't find yourself in the situation you're in right now. And you can set yourself up to be one of the winners coming out of this economic crisis that we're going into. So I, I want you to keep that in mind as I go through all of these um, negative numbers that we're going to talk about and the just uh, unbelievable effect that this is going to have on the economy overall. Um, there's not a whole lot else that I can think to talk about these days because all of the news is literally as far as i can tell just uh coronavirus how many people have have it now how many people have died how many people will die you know the next um i guess the next week or so the next two weeks are supposed to be like the second wave or whatever and and that's going to really hit hospitals hard I did check in with my uh, sister and, you know, she's sort of on the front lines of this stuff. She's a nurse for any of you uh, new listeners out there. And she's in Milwaukee and, you know, she's not only is she exhausted and basically just uh, a sitting duck waiting to get the coronavirus and she's got a kid to take care of, but she's getting frustrated with the, the employment situation over there because they're not redeploying any of the, the doctors or nurses in other areas who aren't getting slammed. They're actually sitting at home doing like video conferences and stuff with patients, you know, safe and sound from their own quarantine and, and the rest of the nurses that are sort of on the front lines and the ICUs and things like that dealing with, the worst possible cases of the coronavirus uh, are um, are not getting any support out there. So if you can think of, you know, I'm sure I, we have listeners that are all over the country, maybe all over the world that we do have. Uh, it is pretty interesting to see that, you know, you have people like in Singapore listening to your podcast. Um, I always wonder how they, they find that, but. I appreciate everybody that listens to the show, and I do want a worldwide audience. That would be incredible. But if you can think of something that you could possibly do to support your local healthcare providers, I know there's a lot of um, charities that are starting up and charitable events. There's one libertarian event that um, Tom Woods and uh, Dave Smith and a bunch of other big names in the libertarian uh, movement have have started it's it's on saturday you can um go on twitter and do a search for it i guess uh for one of those guys if you're not already following them i don't know what you're doing listening to me and not to them but they're doing a charity event there's a lot of opportunity here for those of us who are in a position to help others and that's one of the reasons why I want everybody to be successful in life and not look to the government for, for handouts and things like that is because if you can put yourself in a, a stable position and you can be successful, then you're in a position to help others. And, and we can show the world that we don't need to steal from people at gunpoint, threaten to throw them in cages just to do some good in the world. 
Um, there, there's plenty of, of people that are motivated to, to come up with a wide variety of solutions to the, the, you know, plethora of problems that are now facing people all over the country, all over the world. And, and you know, like I talked about on the last episode, that just having one, um, one size fits all sledgehammer. This is the way we're going to help things. This is how th- this program is going to work. It, you know, it doesn't always help that. It, it only helps a certain amount of people that are in that situation. And for others, it could prove detrimental. And I have an article in the stack today that's going to talk about that and small businesses and the problems they are currently facing in the wake of the new stimulus program that's supposed to save the country. So start thinking of of ways, those of you who are in a position to do so, to contribute to some sort of charity, start a charity, get something going where we can um, try to support the people that are on the front lines of this. I don't think there's anything more libertarian than doing that voluntarily. So, and if you know of anything, uh, feel free to hit me up on Twitter and maybe I can, uh, look into it, spread the word a little bit, talk, give you a plug on the show, something like that. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get through this. It's hopefully, you know, by the end of this month or so we could uh, begin uh, a return to normalcy. Normal's starting to look uh, like a long way away. And unfortunately, the real fallout from this, after you know, after we deal with the virus, this is a two-pronged problem. And that's one of the things that I've been trying to figure out what the hell has been going on in these markets the last uh, week or so. Because we've gotten unbelievably devastating economic news and it's just the tip of the iceberg and the markets are delusional people are delusional everybody seems to think that oh we'll just we'll get through this coronavirus thing and then it'll just be pedal to the metal we'll go right back to the way things were no no that's not going to happen okay this was these are two separate problems the, the coronavirus just exacerbated and accelerated the problems in the economy, as I've been talking about ad nauseum for probably the last month on this show. We are not going back to the economy we had before, nor should we. It was a big, fat, ugly bubble, as Donald Trump pointed out. And it just got bigger, fatter, and uglier. And everything the government's doing in response to this coronavirus will only make things worse, as you all are well aware. So um, the idea that we could just take a, a 10, million do- uh, 10 million unemployed people in, an, in stride is insane to me. But the first number that came out was last week, right? I think it was uh, Friday, last Friday, and I probably mentioned it on Monday's show. The first um, unemployment number that came out was huge. It was 3.3 million people. 3.3 million people in one week filed for unemployment. Okay? Then we got this week's number, and it was twice that. It was 6.48, basically 6.5 million people. So in the last two weeks, we've had 10 million people file for unemployment. We got the uh, jobs numbers, the unemployment figures for March, and it was a disaster. The, uh, let me pull up the article here. March jobs disaster, 701,000 jobs lost. Unemployment rate soars the most in 45 years as the U.S. slides into depression. Okay. And, you know, I mentioned probably a couple weeks ago on this show that we were headed for depression. It wasn't, you know, (laughs) that hard of a call to make, although we still had up until last week, I think, the the chairman of the Federal Reserve saying that there wasn't even a recession in sight. You know, (laughs) I don't know why anybody takes these government officials or these, you know, technically the, the Fed is... Uh, pretending to be independent, right? That's just a bunch of bullshit. But I don't know why anybody takes them seriously at this point. They never see a recession coming. We're always right on the cusp of economic collapse, and they're out there saying how there's nothing wrong. 
And it's just this retarded logic that they use where they think, you know, if they say that there's a potential for a a recession, that that will become this self-fulfilling prophecy and that will bring on a recession when maybe we could have avoided it. But we can't. We can't avoid this forever. So let's get into the article, shall we? And just like that, the record 113 straight months of employment growth is over with a bang. While today's payrolls report was expected to not be quite as terrible as the recent initial claims suggested, especially since the March survey, uh, the March survey week took place around March 13th. So this is like almost a, a month ago now. In other words, it was ahead of the big shutdown and, uh, you know, the closing down of all these major cities and everything like that. It ended up being catastrophic. Nonetheless, the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, reported moments ago that a whopping 701,000 jobs were lost in March, seven times more than the 100,000 expected, and just shy of the worst payroll prints recorded during the financial crisis. So we have to go back to the worst recession since the Great Depression to find numbers that were close to this. Like, we almost hit that number. And remember, this number is reflecting a time period before things got really bad. Like, we're talking about the early March numbers, not, like, what we've been doing for the last two, three weeks. This happened well before the worst of the coronavirus-induced coma hit suggests that what's to come next will be truly biblical. And not like it matters, but there were also revisions to the non-farm payroll numbers from January. Those were revised down by 59,000 from 273 to 214. The change in February was actually revised up by 2,000 from 273 to 275. With these revisions, employment gains in January and February combined were 57,000 lower than reported. So we were already uh, doing worse than we were expecting before all of this craziness hit. Private sector jobs dropped by 713,000 versus uh, 163,000, with almost all the drop the result of a record collapse in service-providing jobs. Now, if you remember on this show, I told you that all of the jobs that we've seen in this so-called recovery, and this is one of the reasons why it was such a phony recovery, were all these service sector jobs, right? Because the, uh, the American people seem to think that what drives economic growth, the engine of economic growth, is spending and consuming. And so they were thinking that, hey, we're creating all these jobs in the service sector, you know, leisure, uh, hotels, restaurants, things like that. Oh, this is a great economic recovery. Donald Trump is always out there talking about how we have the strongest economy in the world. Well, which jobs were going to be the most vulnerable to the type of shutdown that the government imposed on us? Yes, these service sector jobs. So we're seeing an unprecedented collapse in the only area of job growth that we were seeing for the last 10, uh, 12 years, something like that. You know, we weren't creating manufacturing jobs. We were probably losing them most of the time. And the one sector of the economy that was seeing job growth is going to be the sector that is just absolutely devastated by this coronavirus stuff. And these jobs, a lot of these jobs, as I closed out the last show with, they're not coming back. They they just aren't. Uh, uh, These businesses, they're going under. A lot of them were going to go under before. Retail, a lot of these restaurants were already struggling. So even once this um, shutdown is over and they allow people to open up their businesses again, there are not going to be the same number of businesses operating. They're, they're not going to need the same number of employment. So this is going to be bad for quite a while. The unemployment rate, back to the article, soared from 3.5% to 4.3%, led by a record surge in Hispanic unemployment. Not, not a big surprise there, since there's probably a lot of Hispanic people in the service sector uh, part of the economy. In March, the employment rate increased by 0.9 percentage points to 4.4. This is the largest over-the-month increase in the rate since January 1975. 
the number of unemployed persons rose by 1.4 million to 7.1 million in March. A sharp increase in this measure reflects the effects of the coronavirus and efforts to contain it. The participation rate plunged to a seven-year, from a seven-year high to tie the lowest low in five years. Now, I know I just threw a, num- a lot of numbers at you right there, and I don't want this to become one of those shows where your eyes just glaze over because you're getting hit with percentages and years and everything. But the 1975 is an interesting year or an interesting time period to be compared to because what we had in the 1970s was something that all of these uh, proponents of Keynesianism never thought was possible, and that is stagflation. Okay, stagflation is when you have really high levels of inflation combined with high unemployment and a stagnant economy. Now, in Keynesian circles, that was supposed to be impossible, right? They they didn't think that you could have high unemployment and high inflation at the same time. I don't want to go into the the reasons why they thought that, but the, the entire decade of the 1970s completely disproved their flawed economic ideology. And I don't know why to this day anybody really believes in that other than politicians because Keynesianism gives them every excuse they need to promise uh, everything, uh, all these free lunches to the American people. But what we are headed for is actually probably worse than stagflation because we're not even going to have a stagnant economy. We're going to be in a depression. If we're lucky, we'll be in a recession. Um, We'd be hoping for stagnation. But we're going to be in a recession with really, really high unemployment and unbelievably high inflation. So this is going to be a disaster economically for a ton of people. And we're going to get into the Fed's balance sheet here in a minute. And that, that's going to give you an idea of the inflation that's coming now that we've gone over the, the unemployment that's, that's uh, coming down the pipeline. Um, these these numbers are only going to get worse. Remember, we none of these numbers are reflecting any of the the uh, jobs that are lost over the last um, like three weeks or so, and we're still headed for the the worst two weeks of this thing. So I I think it's safe to um, assume that the next that this week, uh, this next coming week, and the week after that, we're going to see similar, if not even higher, unemployment claims. So we're, like we could have twenty million people out of the workforce, okay? And I mean, that is a huge number. That is a huge number of unemployed people that a lot of them are not going to have jobs to come back to once this virus is over with. And then you combine that with the the government programs to um, extend unemployment. Now they're talking about extending it to six months. And remember, they're given the extra 600 bucks. So some of these people are going to be making more being unemployed than they ever made actually working. So even if their job exists when the coronavirus is over, they're not going back to it, at least not right away. Why would they? Why would you go back to work when you can take the, the rest of the summer off making as much or more than you were making while you were working? Who would do that? So um, we, are, we are far... like. Th- it is just incredible to me the the disconnect between the Wall Street and what's actually going on in the economy right now because the markets don't seem to have uh, any idea how bad this is going to be or or they're fooling themselves i mean the 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 markets were down a little bit today i think they closed the dow closed down about 400 points or so bonds have been getting hammered but you know it, it <laughs> When you print an unemployment number, uh, unemployment claims of 3.3 million and the market closes basically up on the day and then you follow that with a 6.5 million number claim and then you follow that with beating estimates to the downside, estimates were 100,000 jobs lost. Well, 700,000 jobs were lost. And the market barely moves like this is either we are going to gap down big league on Monday and this bear market is going to continue its next big leg down or I I just I don't understand 
what is going on in this market. Um, It is a bear market. Make no mistake about it. And we are very early on in this bear market. And remember, we have an entire generation of, of people trading, people investing that have never known a bear market. We got people on Wall Street. We got all these kids today that think they're they're fucking God's gift to the world. That they're all these geniuses because they've done nothing but invest in a Fed-induced bubble bull market. You couldn't you couldn't do anything wrong. Every time the market dipped a little bit, you bought it and it went up. So everybody thinks they're a genius. You know, there's this old saying in um, trading circles: don't confuse brains with a bull market. And that's exactly what we're going to have here. And we are going to have an entire generation of traders who are going to get a huge dose of reality over the next year, uh, year, two years, something. I don't know how long this could go on, but um, you're, you're not going to follow the biggest bull market in history with the shortest bear market in history. OK, this is not over. And the fact that there are so many people on Wall Street that think, hey, maybe we found a bottom. You haven't. As soon as you you're at you have uh, that many you have the vast majority of traders, most of whom have never seen a bear market in their life, wouldn't know if it fell on their lap, uh, thinking that the bottom is in. I guarantee you, it's not in. Okay, and I don't remember if I mentioned this on a previous episode. I might have, but the the way markets work, the way trends work, right? When you're in a bull market, you get slow incremental ratchets upward, right? You're slowly climbing up and you get like drastic, like quick corrections down. And then you ratchet up and you get a quick dip down and then you ratchet up, you get a quick dip down and you do that all the way up until you max out and you go into a bear market. And then the opposite takes place, okay? You get the slow ratchet down with big corrections up. Oh, we just had a big correction up it was over twenty percent uh, correction, which technically puts you back in a in a bull market. But I promise you, this is a head fake. Um, I I can't imagine that that bear market is over that early. So that's going to be the head fake that fucks over a lot of rookie traders. Okay, a lot of people that don't understand the impact of this, that don't understand economics. And we're headed much lower. So I would be very careful if I were you, what you're doing with your investments. Do not get sucked into these head fakes, okay? Don't be so anxious to catch the exact bottom because timing the market is going to be impossible, all right? But you could get yourself wiped out if you're trying to catch the bottom and and you're just getting hit with a head fake, which the market loves to do. It likes to shake out all of those uh, overzealous traders that don't understand what's really going on. So that is your little economics or little market trading um, lesson for today. Bull markets climb a wall of worry. Bear markets slide a slope of hope. So uh, always remember that. And you, you tend to get really drastic moves, counter trend moves. And um, they had fake a lot of people. So you got to be very careful. And, you know, I've been thinking about putting together some sort of very rudimentary or, or beginner class or like a webinar or something that I could do for the listeners of this show and anybody that wants to sort of just who has like no prior, like you wouldn't have to have any prior knowledge of markets or economics or anything like that. But if you just want to learn how to read a a stock chart and and just sort of be able to pick up on signs in a market, because you can look at a chart and a lot of what I do is what's called technical analysis, which differs from fundamental analysis. But I I can look at a a chart of a stock, currency, it doesn't matter. And you can get an idea of what the market is telling you just based on looking at the chart and you can get a feel for what is most likely to happen. I mean, obviously nothing is guaranteed. If it was that easy, I would be on a yacht somewhere podcasting. I would not be confined to my condo here in Chicago. But um, anyway, I've been thinking about putting together a little something like that. So if, if that interests you, 
you think you can get some value out of that, hit me up on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. And if, if enough people are interested, maybe I'll, I'll put something together and, and we can do that from our quarantined locations since nobody else has anything better to do. And you could actually learn something instead of just frying your brain watching um, Ozark or Tiger King or whatever. By the way, Ozark, one of the best shows uh, out there right now. I, I plowed through that. Yeah, I'm making fun of people for streaming, but I, I'm basically doing that every night. So I, I don't know uh, why I'm making fun of everybody. But um, you, you have to do more than just uh, veg out in front of the TV, you know, invest in your human capital. And if you want to do that, I, I can... Um, Maybe teach you a little something about uh, about trading, about uh, chart uh, technical analysis, about market structure, about how do how do the how do these things work, and, and we can go from there, and maybe it could uh, turn into a thing. Who knows? Anyway, um, what was I talking about? Oh, stagflation, right? So, I I think that's most likely what this um, recessionary period will look like, or depressionary period, wh whatever it ends up being. You're going to have eventually very high inflation and very high unemployment. And that is a very bad combination to have because if you think about a depression, right, what is the one thing that, that people need it when they've lost their jobs or they've been, their hours have been cut back? The only relief that we can get a, as consumers is a, a little um, a fall in prices, a deflationary environment. Deflation is a contraction in the money supply, which results in falling prices. And inflation is an expansion of the money supply, which manifests itself in rising prices. Now, in a, a depressionary environment, you need that deflation. You need prices to come down because everything was overvalued. And we need to find what the, the proper price of things, of assets really are, uh, or assets of resources really are, by having them reallocated and repriced. And consumers, as people on, on fixed income, everything, everybody benefits from falling prices. And the, the government does the opposite. They're, they're trying to prop up things and keep them artificially more expensive. It's the most retarded uh, policy of all time. And they did this stuff during the Great Depression when they they were paying farmers to destroy their crops, to keep prices up. They were setting all sorts of wage and price controls to make sure that the price of labor stayed really high and the price of goods stayed really high. And then, of course, instead of you know being employed at a really high wage, you just got fired. You lost your job altogether. Like, why? What would be so bad if prices came down a little bit for everybody? You get, you get cheap gas, you get cheaper food. If, every, if the price of everything goes down, it's, it's fine. Everybody gets relief. Falling prices are the only relief that people get, especially when you're out of work and you need to, you need to dip into your savings if you have any. Or if you're getting a check from the government and you're on a fixed income, your falling prices are the one thing that could help you. And that's the one thing that the Fed and the government won't let happen. So this is going to be uh, pretty bad. And, you know, we actually, speaking of the Great Depression, what, what should the government do? It, it's not even that they should do nothing. They should be cutting spending. They should be cutting government. The government is a drag on the economy. Remember, they have to be supported by all of the productive people in society. They're, they're diverting resources that we need, that we desperately need for other things. They're all being diverted towards government. And so they need to cut spending. They need to be laying off thousands of government employees who are nothing but a drag on everything. That's what needs to happen. It's not even that they need to do nothing. They need to do something. They just need to get government out of the way. And we should have learned that lesson. There were, you know, there were actually two potential depressions in the 1920s. One of them was in 1920, where we actually had larger, more drastic, quicker drops in unemployment or uh, drops in employment. You know, the, the economic numbers were a lot worse than they were in the crash of 1929. What did the government do? The government actually cut spending 
it tightened its belt. It didn't interfere in the marketplace. Okay, they did not intervene in the markets. The Fed did not try to stimulate our way out of it. And the, the depression, the potential depression, was over in a matter of months. By 1921, the market had purged everything and reset the economy and, and had come out of that recession before anybody even really knew how bad it could have been. It was over very quickly. It took some time. It's not instantaneous. But by the following year, what would have been as bad or worse than the Great Depression somehow was magically solved by the market reallocating resources and the government staying out of the way. And when we had a crash in 1929, that was almost as bad in, in terms of the economic numbers as the 1920. Uh, forgotten recession is what that's called, or the forgotten depression, I think they call it. In 1929, the government steps in and does the opposite. We had jobs programs. We had uh, money printing. We had all of these government programs designed to, to fight the effects of, of an economic downturn. You know, like I said, they were paying farmers to destroy their crops. All these insane, insanely idiotic ideas. And all of these governmental job programs, you know, they're building bridges and roads to nowhere and things like that. All of these things turned what would have been a recession into what became the Great Depression because it, it prevents the markets from fixing the problems, from reallocating those resources, from fixing the imbalances in the economy. And it, it, it's what actually made, you know, they, the, the saying is like Herbert Hoover had a recession on his hands and FDR made it, made it into the Great Depression or something like that. It was all the government intervention that did that. And we're embarking on the exact same path that we did because everybody seems to think that everything that FDR did was what pulled us out of the Great Depression. No, no, they've got it ass backwards. Everything he did is what turned a recession into the Great Depression. It's what made it take 12 years to get out of it, okay? Everything was terrible. Everything was terrible and got worse years, years into it. The mid-1930s were some of the worst years of the Great Depression after all of this government intervention in the economy. And so the idea that we're going to come out of this with unprecedented government interference, unprecedented Fed interference in the markets, the trillions. Uh, I'm going to get I got the article right here. I'm going to get right into it about the amount of money that's being spent right now to try to combat this recession and prop up these markets. The idea that this is going to be over quickly is insane. It's going to take another uh, who God knows how long to purge the system of all the imbalance that they're pumping into it right now. So with that in mind, brace yourself for the Fed's balance sheet. We got some numbers in the last three weeks. This is what's been going on. And for those of you who don't understand what the Fed's balance sheet is, a balance sheet is just the assets that they're holding, right? They're, they're purchasing the QE programs, the QE infinity that they've embarked on right now. They're buying federal debt treasuries. They're buying treasuries from the government, and they're buying mortgage-backed securities, okay? And what they do is they, they create this money out of thin air. All these banks have accounts at the Fed, and they will... Um, they will buy these treasuries and these mortgage-backed securities from any of these uh, financial institutions that have them, and they will just credit their uh, their bank accounts with with dollars made up of nothing, made from nothing, a couple keystrokes. Okay, that's a very simplified version of, of what's going on here. Okay, so in the last three weeks, <laughs> um, the Fed's balance sheet is up 1.6 trillion dollars trillion dollars at the height of the um or i guess i should say the depths of the great recession their balance sheet after three rounds of quantitative easing got up to about four and a half trillion and the idea was that they were going to unwind that after you know they got us through that really dark period they were going to slowly but surely unwind that balance sheet and everything was going to be hunky-dory 
Now, that's just that's impossible to happen. You can't be, go from the biggest buyer of something to the biggest seller of something and not have the market completely tank on you. It's like um, I think it was was it Peter Schiff who had the analogy, you know how they um, the magicians or whatever, they'll they'll set the table and then they'll rip the tablecloth out from under all the dishes and glassware and everything without disturbing them. But they get the tablecloth out. Well, what the Fed was claiming they were going to do was they were going to set that table with all their quantitative easing, and then they were going to pull the actual table out from under the tablecloth, and all of the dishes and the glassware and the tablecloth was just going to stay elevated in the air. It's going to levitate on its own. It's impossible to do. And we got we figured that out the hard way, didn't we? Because they were able to get their balance sheet down from about four and a half trillion to three point eight trillion, something in that range, before boom, here we are today. And then they had to ramp up operations again, resume QE, add another one point six trillion in three weeks, bringing their total balance sheet to six trillion dollars. Okay, that is. I mean, these numbers, they're insane. As a human being, we cannot grasp what the, the size of a trillion is. It's just too big. Hang on just a second here. Let's, let, let's give an analogy. I did, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I did tweet out uh, an image of what I think it was like a million dollars versus a billion dollars versus a trillion dollars actually looks like for like a visual thing. But if you want to think about it in terms of time, right? A million seconds, one million with an M seconds is about 11 days of time. Okay. Now one billion seconds, billion with a B is about 31.5 years. Okay. That's the difference between a million and a billion, 11 days, a little less than two weeks and th almost 32 years. Okay. That's a million to a billion. Now a trillion one trillion seconds is 31,709.8 years. Okay, that's the difference between 1 trillion and 1 billion. 31.5 years, 31,710 years, roughly. Okay, so think about what was going on 32 years ago. I was three years old versus... 32,000 years ago. And that's the difference between a billion and a trillion. And the Fed just added 1.6 trillion to its balance sheet in the last three weeks. And their entire balance sheet is 6 trillion. It, it, this is insane. It's going to be 10 trillion in no time. That's going to 10 trillion. Our national debt the national debt is at uh, is going to be 26 trillion by the end of this year. I think by next year, it's going to be 30 trillion. And I was thinking like these numbers are just astronomical. I was thinking about this 30 trillion. I mean, our GDP, we're, we're going to have a uh, 200% of GDP, a national debt. That's 200% of our GDP because our GDP is going to go way down. I think it's probably about 18 trillion right now in GDP, but it's going to probably go down to about 15 or so in, in a depression. And, that, and then we could have 200% of GDP. That's insane. And if you go back to the last couple of presidents, they've all been doubling the national debt. Like go back to like Bill Clinton. I, he probably doubled it from H.W. Bush. Okay. George W. Bush doubled the national debt from $5 trillion to, to about $10 trillion. Barack Obama doubled $10 trillion to $20 trillion in two terms. And I remember thinking, I, I might have even talked about uh, this on the show a long time ago, sometime last year, where, you, you know, the next president, if he keeps this trend going and he has two terms in office, we could be looking at a $40 trillion national debt. And that just seemed insane to me. I was like, there's no way that could happen. Uh, something would have to break before we get to that point. But now look at this. I think we're going to be at 30 trillion easily by the end of next year with all the money they're creating and just all the debt to try to prop up these markets and prop up this phony economy. If Donald Trump gets a second term, I mean, these numbers are only going to um, escalate exponentially. 
I mean, the debt feeds on itself. And if interest rates rise just a little bit, if they lose their handle on interest rates, imagine the entire tax revenue, every dollar in taxation that the federal government takes in, having to go to servicing the interest on the national debt. That's where we're headed right now. Okay. According to the, the Fed's latest uh, weekly H41, uh, that's their balance sheet, as of April 1st, the Fed's balance sheet hit a record, $5.811 trillion. It increased $557 billion in one week, just a week. They increased their, their balance sheet. They, they created $557 billion out of thin air and bought treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And as of uh, close of business Thursday, so this was yesterday, they were at $5.91 trillion. That's the increase of 1.6. So it's safe to assume that they are well, uh, well at the $6 trillion mark as of Friday's close because they're buying another $90 billion worth of, um, of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. They've, they've committed to that. So we're, we're at $6 trillion now. And remember what the, the stated goal of these, um, these Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke, you know, he said they wanted to, inf they wanted to create an asset-based recovery, right? They wanted this wealth effect of the stock market going up and everybody feeling um, richer as a result of their portfolios increasing in value. That was the whole idea behind QE. Well, that's going to work in reverse as this market rolls over and everybody's assets are, are plummeting through the floor, okay? And a lot of that inflation the, the first time around went into the stock market. The stock market, I mean, we reached all-time highs based off of all these stock buybacks of people getting cheap money from the Fed and buying back their stocks. So I, I think a lot of the inflation that we, we didn't actually see from the the Fed's balance sheet going to four and a half trillion, was because that money was in the stock market. That's where the inflation was. Okay, that's where the prices were increasing. I don't think that that's where the next wave of inflation is going to go. Because I mean, who's buying stocks when you're in a bear market? Who's buying stocks when you're in a depression or a recession? You don't have a job. No, no, they're they're selling those assets. They're selling their stocks because they're going to need the money. Look, I mean, the people who were not making a lot of money before all of this, you know, making 30, 40, 50 grand a year, something like that, you're going on unemployment. Uh, okay, you, you'll be fine in the short term while those unemployment checks still buy something, all right? But all of that money is just going right back into the economy to get your daily necessities, right? Your food, shelter, water, things like that, um, clothes. All right, so that money's being spent and it's traveling through the economy right away. Now, what about the people that aren't eligible for not even the, the $1,200 uh, stimulus check, but whose unemployment checks aren't going to come close to maintaining their standard of living that they were used to? People who are making six figures, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year who lose their job. All right, they're $1,000 a week. That's not going to cut it. So what are they going to have to do? Well, these are the people that had all of these great stock portfolios that they were relying on. So they're going to start to sell their stocks because they're going to need the money, and that's going to feed on itself and drive this market lower because everyone's selling and nobody's buying. That's going to, uh, that's going to send stocks a lot lower, and they're going to have to do that because they're going to need the money because they, they're out of work. So th this is a, they're only compounding this problem of unemployment with inflation. And then price, we're going to see prices rise throughout the economy. All the things that you're buying right now are, are going to be a, a lot more um, expensive in the future because the dollar is going to lose its purchasing power. And, and the one thing that the people need in a depression, the one pe thing that people need when they're out of work is a little... Um, uh, relief in terms of prices, prices coming down. Imagine having to not pay as much for food and for, um, you know, toiletries and things like that. But those those prices are going to go way up while people's incomes are going way down. This is uh, this is a recipe for disaster. And, I, you know, I wish I had some good news to report to you on this front. But uh, th this is what's coming. So uh, don't say I didn't warn you.
Okay. And the last thing I want to talk about today is this small business loan program that the government rolled out because that's turning out to have some unintended consequences. Who could have seen that coming, right? So this is the, um, they call it the Paycheck Protection Program. And remember, don't forget to apply my rule, the, the rule of government um, legislation titles, to the Paycheck Protection Program, okay? It's always the opposite of whatever they name these bills and these programs. They will have the opposite of their intended effect. So if they're trying to protect the paycheck, rest assured, they will protect nobody's paycheck, okay? Now, to the article. In the first day the, that the American small businesses can apply for the SBA's Paycheck Protection Program, and this is the $350 billion program that is part of the bigger $2 trillion bailout package designed to provide small businesses access to capital for payroll and other overhead costs to the tune of two and a half months of average payroll, and which must be accessed via an existing bank relationship. And the rollout is predictably a mess, with some banks such as Bank of America already accepting loan applications, while others like J.P. Morgan delaying the rollout to 1 p.m., a third group of banks such as Wells Fargo has conspicuously failed to provide its rollout plans, uh, a recurring shock as millions of small business owners head to these bank websites to apply for the PPP funds is that contrary to the SBA's guidance that any small business with 500 or less employees can apply, Going to lender portals shows that only a very narrow subset of America's millions of small businesses are actually eligible. In fact, only those companies that are already have a lending relationship, i.e. an outstanding loan with a given bank, are, at least at the moment, able to apply for the rescue funds. Bank of America's website confirms, stating on its eligibility page that only clients with a business lending and a business deposit relationship at Bank of America are eligible to apply for Paycheck Protection Program through our bank. In other words, any business that only has a deposit account and no loan or business card is out of luck. And the kicker, literally for the, those Bank of America clients who would like to become eligible and open a business account, a business loan account, well, it's too late for them. As the bank makes clear, that should have happened before February 15th. So this was the government's plan, was they had to come up with some sort of cutoff, like you had to have a, an outstanding loan with the bank prior to February 15th in order to get the, these uh, bailout funds, right? So what's the problem here, right? What, what's going to go wrong with this government program? Well, right off the bat, in, in typical government fashion, right, they're 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 giving the bailouts, they're giving the money, the loans to the businesses that were most likely already going to fail before all of the coronavirus stuff ever, ever had an effect on their uh, business, right? So the, the, the businesses that were viable who would ramp up um, production again after the coronavirus stuff is, is over, well, they can't get the bridge loan that they need to hold them over. Only the businesses that were most likely going to fail in the first place who have already had to borrow money in order to stay afloat are going to get this money. And another um, provision of this Paycheck Protection Program is that you can't fire your employees, right? So they, they give you the loan, and as long as you don't fire your employees, the, the loan's forgiven in three years. You don't have to pay any of it back. But what's going to happen What's going to happen if a business shuts down after they borrowed the money? That they, they will go out of business before the three-year period, right? So that all of the paychecks will be lost. All of their employees will lose their jobs, right? The business goes under, and they don't pay back any of the loans because the business doesn't exist anymore. And, it, and these loans, they're not backed by any collateral or anything. They don't have to put up any collateral. It's just, here's the money. As long as you don't fire anybody for three years, you, you just, uh, you don't have to pay us back. And the fact that they're based on not firing people, you know, maybe some of these businesses have to fire people in order to stay in business. You know, sometimes during a recession, during a depression, 
companies, I know this is going to sound crazy, they actually have to cut costs. They're not like the government. They don't just get to ramp up a cost and demand more money from people at the threat of violence every time something goes wrong. No, no, they have to cut costs. They need to lay off some people in order to save the business. I mean, payroll is the biggest cost for most businesses. It's, it's the, their biggest expense, maybe after taxes, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, in order to stay competitive, in order to stay in business, they may need to lay off some workers, but they can't do that if they want to get this loan money. Uh, okay, so the, they, they take the loan money, and in taking the, the loan and not, paying it, not wanting to pay it back, they could be sealing their fate for a failed business because they can't, they can't fire the people they need to fire in order to remain viable. So the paychecks aren't protected, the businesses go under, and the government doesn't recoup any of the loans. Nailed it. Nailed it. There's the Paycheck Protection Program for you. And the businesses that are in the worst shape, that were probably fucked long before any of this coronavirus stuff, are the ones who get the loans first. Nobody is going to pay any of this back. They will either stay in business uh, for the three-year period and not repay, not repay any of the loans, or they'll go out of business before the three-year period and not pay back any of the loans. And the, of course, the, like the, in typical government fashion, the irony is they could actually be forcing a viable business into bankruptcy, a, a, a business that might have actually survived had they been able to lay off some workers they, they, they might have been able to survive, but they're being forced into bankruptcy because they can't fire anybody now. I mean, this is going to be a, this is going to be a disaster. Of course, it's going to be a disaster. Remember, the Paycheck Protection Program will, will do none of that, okay? It will not protect anybody's paycheck. So we, we could see even more small businesses go under than would have uh, absent this government intervention. They're also doing their best to destroy other business models, like the business models of all these um, gig uh, employee, employers, the, the gig workers, you know, the Ubers and things like that. Because what they're doing now with the, um, the unemployment benefits, this is, this is a new thing. They're, they're extending unemployment to gig workers. So gig workers who were self-employed, who never got fired or anything, can now collect this um, new uh, unemployment benefit, the, the extra six hundred for six months. Now they're gonna—I mean, they're gonna extend it. Who are we kidding? It's an election year. They'll extend it eight months at a minimum, at least until the election, right? I mean, that's just—that's just gonna be obvious. But so they're actually giving this unemployment benefit to gig workers who 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 normally wouldn't be eligible for such a thing. But, you know, since it's an emergency, they're going to get it now. And that's going to force a lot of these. I, I think eventually this is going to force a lot of companies to reclassify all of their independent contractors as employees. And so they'll be entitled to these benefits. And that, of course, is just going to increase cost, increase taxes and mandates and requirements and regulations. And they'll run into overtime issues because they'll have to pay them overtime rates. And, and these business models of the companies like Uber and Lyft and, and things like that and the, the delivery services, every, everything that all these companies that have been operating at massive losses but have been able to um, at least survive on the fact that they have lower labor costs, like they can offer lower prices or offer the service for free in some instances because they have low labor costs. But they've been hemorrhaging money this entire time. I mean, Uber loses billions of dollars every quarter. They've been hemorrhaging money as it is with low labor costs. And now, uh, like I said, labor costs are some of the, the highest expenses for regular brick and mortar companies right? that, that don't have this gig worker um, thing going for them. So that could all change. And investors who have been subsidizing these, these types of unprofitable companies, well, we're, they're not going to be buying because we're in a recession, right? Uh, people are people are going to be tightening their belt. They're not going to be propping up companies that don't make any money. In fact, companies that lose money, um, who who depend on these gig workers to make their model work, and depend on investors basically subsidizing consumers, right? Because the the consumer gets the lower cost items, because the company 
can apparently continue to lose money and still get investors to prop them up. Uh, and this is just going to be, I, I think all of these business models are going to get crushed in this recession. And we're going to have to see even more bailouts. Like I was looking at uh, Ford today. G GM and Ford are going to need bailouts again. I mean, they're going bankrupt. And GM already got bailed out once. And remember how I was talking about on the last episode and this episode? Like once you get bailed out, they, they put all these strings. They attach all these strings to the bailout money that basically ensures that you can never be uh, profitable or competitive again in a market where you're competing against companies that don't have those sort of strings. And G here's GM. Remember Joe Biden bragging, Osama bin Laden is dead and GM is alive, right? Well, here we are, and they're, they're almost dead again. They're on life support or in need of life support. They're in need of another bailout. I mean, they're, nobody's buying a car for a very long time, right? At least no American, right? And uh, th there's a ton of auto loan debt out there that people are going to default on. You're not going to be able to get these ridiculous seven-year loans anymore to buy a car. Like nobody's going to be, a, th th this is going to be a disaster. So they're going to need to be bailed out again. Ford, uh, that, that auto debt bubble has popped, okay? This is over for them. Nobody's buying cars anytime soon. Ford's, Ford's stock today is at $4.24. That's where it closed. So I, I, I can't imagine the, the government letting Ford fail, so they'll probably get a bailout again. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, you know, what, what did they do the last time around? All that cash for clunker stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is just going to be, these bailouts are never ending. And each time they bail you out, they set you up for failure. Propping up failed companies is no good. You're just delaying the inevitable. It's a bitter tasting pill, but we have to take it. You know, the adult thing to do, right, to, to maintain this analogy, the adult thing to do is to force your kid to take the medicine even though they don't want to because it tastes bad, right? Because you know it's better for them in the long run. Yeah, sure, in the short term it tastes bad, but in the long run it's going to make them healthy. The, the kid's only thinking about the short term, the bad taste. But you're supposed to be the adult in the room. All right. The problem is we have a bunch of children running Washington and not only do they not give us the medicine, what they're doing to us is actually making us sicker. And these are your wise overlords in Washington. Propping up these failed companies is the same thing. The medicine is letting them fail. The medicine is to allow the free market to work. And yes, that's going to mean a lot of pain for a lot of people. But propping them up like this, delaying the inevitable, doesn't solve any of the underlying problems. The only way you can solve that is through bankruptcy. And remember, nobody is getting a free lunch here. All of, the, all of this propping up, all this money that they're spending, the, the $6 trillion that the Fed has now has on their balance sheet, these $2 trillion stimulus packages, and you know the ink's not even dry on that first one before they're coming up with another $2 trillion. Listen, we are all on the hook for this, okay? There's no such thing as a free lunch. The government spending is the taxation, okay? The real tax rate is whatever the government is spending. They can either tax you directly, they can borrow, or they can create inflation, all right? So taxing directly, the obviously, that's a tax, right? Borrowing, if they borrow money and then they give it to the American people in some way, well, borrowing is just a promise to tax you in the future, all right? And the inflation is a tax on your purchasing power. So no matter what the government is doing, if they are spending, they are taxing you. It's just a matter of time before you have to pay it. And it doesn't matter what the tax rate is now. They can promise you whatever it is, but whatever they're spending at, that's the tax rate that we're ultimately on the hook for. The government cannot help anyone without hurting someone first. All right, if we're worried about jobs and we're worried about workers, how does it make sense to help the workers at the expense of the business owners? Uh, you know, and taxing the rich and all of this. Not You ever get a job from a poor person? No, no. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff right here, and everything they're doing is the wrong thing to do.
and we are going to pay up the ultimate price for this. So it's important that you guys understand what's happening here. It's important that you understand the the lessons of these these crises that we're going through and what the right thing to do is and what the wrong thing to do is. And it's important that you take this time that you have in your quarantine when maybe you're getting one of these government checks or maybe you just have a lot of free time that you do something. I don't care what it is. Do something to set yourself up to um, come out of this uh, on the winning side of things because this this is going to get pretty ugly for a lot of people and it doesn't have to be that way for you. There's always an opportunity somewhere and like I always say, fortunes, huge fortunes are made in, in time in tumultuous times and we are most certainly headed for that. So I am going to wrap there for the week, guys. Enjoy your weekend. Do me a favor. If you like this episode, share it with somebody that you know. Go to iTunes and give me a rating and review. Five stars if you think the show is worth it. And follow me on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. Don't forget to check out the website, pedalingfictionpodcast.com. You can become a supporting listener of the show there. And if you can do all that for me, I will be back next week for you with a brand new episode. Until then, you know the drill. Just keep on pedaling that so-called fiction. Peace.